Welcome back. This is episode two of Valar Podcastus. Um, all men must podcast. Uh, that was just finished watching the episode. That was a hell of an episode. Very excited to be talking to Luke Ryan, writer, comedian, um, slash lifelong best friend of mine. Uh, we've known each other for a very long time and we talk about these books all the time, so it's nice to be doing it under the guise of work. Also, special treat. Um, it was a couple of years ago now, but it's still incredibly fresh, especially given that we're moving beyond the books now. Spoke to George R.R. R. Martin for the Wheeler Centre and for Supernova Convention. Spoke to him for an hour on stage. I've got a good chunk of that after my chat with Luke where we go into real detail about how he writes his books, um, how much of the internet theories he reads and whether they influence his story at all. Whether you can guess what's going to happen in the show if you have read the books and um, the kind of things that inform how he writes, you know, what sort of themes he tries to rely on. Um, all of that is coming up after. But first, let's recap the episode two of series six. It's called Home. Oh, let's start with the ending. This is uh, me and Luke Ryan. Oh, deep breath in, deep breath out. Um, Luke, we just literally pressed, like, stop on the episode and now we've turned on the microphones and we're both still a bit like... <sighs> tingles, Dan. Tingles all over. Yeah. Um, so... I feel weird saying it, but so Jon Snow is back. Yeah, well, that was about as surprising as gravity, but still in the same way, it's pretty amazing to see such a thing kind of unfold on your screen. I kind of thought there would be like more hoopla, more foo-for-all about bringing someone back from the dead. But then like, think of like Thoros of Mir bringing back like Beric Dondarrion. He literally, it was just like that. Like he just said some magic words in a corner, but it's strange <laughs> like that in this sort of... Um, red priest priestess religion that like to to get good weather you have to burn princess shireen at the stake <laughs> but to bring someone back from the dead it's just like the magic words that i guess they got taught at red priest school yeah, like she just like washed the corpse down a yeah. little bit put her hands on it's like <laughs> well i tried uh <laughs> <laughs> scrub a dub abracadabra like <laughs> Um, I, yeah. I feel like there is obviously, um, I'm not sure, I can't remember quite how much they addressed this with the Beric Dondarrion mm. uh, storyline, but the whole idea of diminished returns. Yeah. And yeah, also, yeah. especially with someone like um, Stone Tongue or Catelyn in the uh, mm. books and how empty she sort of was when she came back or she was just a vengeful spirit but couldn't speak and obviously had lost some capacity it in been, the resurrection. It might have been because of how they killed her, though. Because mm. if I remember, like, they slit her throat and then she threw her in the water and she'd been decomposing for a long yeah, time. Yeah, that's true. Um, but there, there is John still Stone definitely... kind of died in a freezer. Yeah, so. I mean, there is still definitely that thing of, like, what <sighs> Beric got bought back eight times and it, they were saying every time he gets bought back, like, a small yeah. part of his soul and his physical sort of ability so really, I mean, dissipates. Jon Snow, this is his first bring back. Oh, totally. So he should like, be fresh as a daisy. Yeah, I presume they've got some sort of nine lives cats rule going on, like the ninth life is the last one. <laughs> <laughs> the only difficult part was like basically just like getting Mel out of her funk. Like she was just be like, no, my magic doesn't mean anything. And Davos is like, come on, you can do it. And she's like, well... All right, I'll for give you. It a shot. Yeah. Like, like oh. I just, I've witnessed you give birth to a shadow baby that yeah. proceeded to move <laughs> through stone, like <laughs> dozens of feet of stone, and yeah. killed a man. Yeah. Oh. Like, sure, you can give this one a crack, Mel. I know, yeah. Like, okay, I'm going to need leeches. I'm going to need a small princess. I'm going to need a funeral pyre. Nah, I've just got the magic words. I know them. I don't know. <laughs> she might have gone to a magic book or something. Mm. But, um, 
is it just like filmmaking or something that they had to like they had all left the room and then it took the the direwolf waking up and it was almost instantaneous. I think that's just the direwolf triggering to the fact that John's back, back? alive yeah. again. I think they were just playing that out for sort of dramatic effect and all power to them because yeah. given how unsurprising this turn of events was that was still a very compelling three minutes of television yeah. oh, I, yeah. I was on the edge of my seat we going, were both yeah leaning real far forward right, and going I know exactly what's going to yes, happen but I when's know. it going to happen I know all I could think was eyes open credits roll eyes open credits roll there's lit there's yeah I, I was waiting for him eyes open scream credits roll scream a bit disappointed that he didn't get the scream I mean Just- that's <laughs> <laughs> how I wake up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and what's going to happen now? What do you reckon? Well, I mean, I guess we're now getting further and further into the whole uh, ice and fire, you know, and their intersections as well. Because yeah. surely there's something about the fact that Jon Snow is the paragon of ice. Well, presumably, with hey, look at his theory. name. Yeah. yeah, what? Hadn't thought about it. Um, <laughs> as now being resurrected through the power of fire yeah, or, or the power of a wet rag. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, she put his hair in the fire. That would have stunk so bad <laughs> in that small, poorly ventilated room. Uh, That's why while they all left, they're like, oh, this is just atrocious. Yeah. God, Mel, you just brought us in here, stunk the place up. Like, <sighs> Imagine if like, she'd full shaved his head and like, and you just- know how everyone was watching Kit Harrington's haircuts at airports and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And they're like, he hasn't cut off his Jon Snow hair. That means he's coming back. What if that had been a wig the whole time and she had to shave his head for the for the ritual and he's been wearing a wig and he can like dramatically pull it off for a Vine video or something? Mm. That would have been cool. Yeah. I kind of wish that she had to remove all bodily hair, just oh. this sort of like long waxing process. The other one I thought was that she would take off her um, amulet, yeah. put it on him and then she would oldify and wither away. Mm. I was like definitely. I what's going on there? I was definitely ready for some sort of self-sacrifice. Like, yeah, same. After that, you it know, felt too easy. Mm, mm. It really did. I feel like there's going to be more dropped, like it, after this, or more explained. Yeah. Um, you know, in the same way, I think Game of Thrones throughout its entire run has always been very good at doing this thing that you register as like a bit of dramatic fulfillment. But then it always goes in a direction that you don't expect. Yeah. Like Daenerys kind of gets picked out from the um, stadium by like Drogon and then gets flown away. And you're yeah. like, now she's going to be the Dragon Queen. And next <laughs> thing you know, she's pretty much dying in a savannah, covered in her own shit and getting yeah. taken prisoner by a like Kalasar. It's like, oh. Off you go to the Dosh Kaleen. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Ah. I just want a linear narrative. None of this circular crap. Um, okay, so... And then meanwhile, I guess, so John sort of got himself a bit of an army as well, considering that one one Wonder Wonderweg or whatever the hell the giant's name is, <laughs> and all those guys have all rocked up. That was actually pretty gratifying. I love watching the giant just yeah. kick ass. Yeah, just throw a mat Flap. against a wall yeah. like a bag of wet newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> Bam! I was like, yes. And they always do it so well, even though they, like the whole uh, wall is essentially registered in monochrome. Like, yeah. They sort of like, he smacks against the wall, throws against the ground, and there is such a gratifying yeah. like skid mark <laughs> of like blood and entrails <laughs> just etched in black across the ground. Oh, so good. that that Yeah, so now I guess that's going to become an army that John will command. Mm. And from what I can tell, he's being besieged on either side by... 
you know, the Boltons on mm. one side and the, um, you know, Army of the Dead yeah. on the other. Like probably a good time to uh, turn our attention towards the Boltons. Well, that's, yeah, that's, so that was the other big, for me at least, the other big, like, because at least with John, you were like, well, I figure that's going to yeah. happen. Surely. Yeah. And in, in a way, I was thinking it would come maybe next episode, episode three. Mm. But in a way, it's good they're barreling on with and just really yeah. churning it out. I, it is. I, I realized while watching the episode today more than I did last week how strange it is to be watching this show now that I have yeah. no idea what's yeah. going to happen. Anyone I, can die at any time. Mm, and I mean, especially with the Boltons thing, I, I must admit. Because as soon as the baby came in, you're like... I was like, he's going to stab the baby. We're going to watch a man stab a baby. I, I was like, he's going to eat that baby like a burrito. <laughs> <laughs> just like wrapped in its swaddling clothes. Whole thing goes in like feet first. And <laughs> Extra like... guac for me, please. <laughs> but yeah. um, but when the stabbing happened, I initially thought... Who that got stabbed? Ru- I thought Roos had stabbed Ramsey. Because yeah. I'm like, of course you would know this was about to happen, yeah. Roos. You were so smart. Yeah. And then, of course, it was Ramsey. And I'm like, oh, Roos... I, no. like, I, but weirdly, you're sympathizing now with Roos because like anything oh. to just like get Ramsay shuffled That's off this it. fucking mortal coil. Imagine that. like When you see like the Lannisters send their regards and you see all the stabbing that happens there, it was all because of Roos Bolton. Would you ever think you'd one day see him get stabbed and go, oh, no, <laughs> what is with this show? Like It's like every time there's someone who's evil, there's someone who's more evil. Mm. Yeah. I feel like finally I'm... It's taken me a long time to actually accept the Ramsey character. Like, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. In both book and TV show, I've just been like, oh, this is such pointless sadism. Like, we mm. get it, George slash Benioff Weiss. Yeah, like, yeah. We, we understand he's a bastard. Like, you know, well, both literally and in action. He just, but yeah. But it's sort of it just recently that it's starting to go, oh, cool. Now he's actually starting to play a proper political part in well, the... Yeah. Actions happening in the north. You'd, um, oh, did you get excited when you, when they said the word Mandalay? When he was talking about the Bannermen, it was like the Umbers, the Karstarks, and the Mandalays, and I went, ooh. Ma- Mandalay is the colossally fat one, right? Yeah, yeah, mm. and um, it's the whole Frey Pies theory, that he like took like three of the Frey um, wards. He had yeah. three Freys as his wards, and he had them killed, baked into a pie, and served at, Maybe like Ramsay's wedding. Yeah. Because they're tucking into the pie and Mandley's yeah. there going like, yes, eat the pie, eat the pie. Because um, like how does what's happening in Winterfell at the moment gel with what was happening towards the end of the fifth book? Because you well, kind of got that sense that the Mandleys certainly were on the verge of turning. There's so much that's different there. For example, Davos is at White Harbour mm. with the Mandleys yeah. on a secret mission. Um, there's like Sansa is still at the airy. Oh Jesus! Thank God they just trimmed all that stuff down oh, yeah, to its yeah. bare essentials and the like, Riverlands and all that. So yeah. can I presume, like, given the pace that George tends to work at in his books, like you sort of will barely get Sansa to Winterfell if she's going that direction until like halfway through the book. Like, Maybe it's fun that the TV, like what if the book doesn't come out, like the series doesn't resolve itself for a few more years yeah. and the TV show just finishes and we get the story that went one way and mm. then the books and the story goes a completely different way. That would be pretty fun. That'd be so cool. <laughs> It'd be like, you get two stories from your favourite universe. Imagine if there was Harry Potter A and Harry Potter B. It'd be like epic saga, choose your own adventure slightly. <laughs> That's really cool. Mm. I don't know. I don't know. Um, and then so... Oh, those 
awful hounds in that horrible kennel. It's just because that was where. Remember Miranda, she took um, Sansa down there yeah. and was like, I've got a special surprise for you. And you're like, oh, no. Like, mm. that corridor of dog death yeah. is just brutal. And um, that was where she found um, Theon slash Reek. Mm. But she got out okay. Mm. But that was almost like a like a Chekhov's kennel. Mm. Like, it was like, <laughs> we've got this kennel and we're going to use it one day. And they did. Oh. Oh. And meanwhile, Paul... Oh. Poor Walter Frey. Like, yeah. just she was never gonna be much of a power player. <laughs> <laughs> um, I get in one of those uh, scenes that the uh, show just enjoys, like showing for a few extra seconds. You know, like, I know. Like, but like, all I think when I see stuff like that is I just go, at least you didn't see the dogs pounce. Like, yeah, because that's the thing. There's always that criticism that. Um, Game of Thrones, it just punishes its audience too much. Yeah. It's too brutal for the sake of shock value or whatever. Yeah. But I always look at it and go, well, they could have they could have gone further there. Yeah. Like they really could have messed up. But I guess so much of it comes out of, well, these days, comes out of Ramsay's yeah. excesses. And again, leading with that thing of like, we know how awful he is. It's like... We, you've just like we know he's about to, like these dogs are about to murder a woman who has just given birth and her baby still oh. swaddled. It's like, do we need to hear four to five seconds worth of like gnashing of teeth, yeah. chomping and whimpers? And it's like with the rape <sighs> scene last year, which is obviously probably a like much more. I mean, it's hard to say this, but a more heinous kind of uh, like incident, considering we are talking about a woman being it's killed. It's incredibly difficult it's... to rank the <laughs> atrocities committed on this show, isn't it? And it's the same thing where, like, it's no grand surprise that, like, you know, Ramsay was going to rape Sansa within this storyline, but the fact that it just stayed there and gave the audio thing for, like, three or four seconds going, it just didn't need to happen. With that said... It was a pretty effective um, What's well, not Sometimes it's nice to watch Game of Thrones and still feel human, like to watch it and go, I oh, know I am still I am still feeling yeah. a bit traumatised by this. Because, <laughs> like, you know, it's not like there's a, an ad break or, or time to process. It's like, and now we're off to the Riverlands or whatever. Like, so, yeah, oh, I just, again, it's like you say, you knew he was, of course he's going to do this. Mm. Of course he's going to think of some awful way to dispose of his... Like mother and brother. Yeah. Which I guess is why I initially thought that it would be Roos killing Ramsay almost. I thought, because yeah. I was like, you're going to subvert this because it's so obvious Ramsay's about to kill this child and Roos would know that. I know. And, and Roos is so much more fun to watch because he's got so much more like machinations and scheming and yeah. wherewithal. And Ramsay's probably less fun to watch because it's just like, oh, oh. Yeah. I'm going to go kill some people. Get the army. That's what always happens, though, is you, someone dies and you go, man, I wanted to watch them more. Mm, the you Tywin know? Lannister problem. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Or, I don't know, a guy called Ned Stark. Remember him? Actually, well, that, that's a vaguely. Good, that's like... a good uh, trans uh, segue into um, Bran lying around in the tree roots with uh, Max von Sydow. Oh, yeah. May's entry in the non-threatening boys calendar 2016. <laughs> <laughs> um, Hot Bran. Yeah, he all growed up. Um, so now we're getting our flashbacks. Yeah, this is very exciting. And we're like, you know, for everyone who's read the books, it's just like, yes, good, good, Tower mm. of Joy, R plus L equals J, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. We're seeing Lyanna. We're probably going to watch her grow up. It was pretty exciting to see Lyanna for the first time. Oh, what about seeing young Ned? 
Oh, yeah. I thought that was really cool as and well. And Uncle Benjamin. Remember yeah. him? Oh, wow. Yeah, well, bloody hell. That, I don't. I, okay, so sidebar on Benjamin. I don't think that'll ever be resolved, and I think that's George R. R. Martin's way of saying sometimes in real life mm. people disappear yeah. and you never find out how or why. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, Chekhov's Benjamin will not be <laughs> resolved. Yeah, because I think that's something that um, George R. R. Martin would like to do. Mm. And speaking of exposition, Hodor's real name is Willis. What you talking about? Or more, what you not talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I did half expect when that scene flashed back that Bran would now be able to understand. Oh, he could speak Hodor. Yeah. And Hodor would be like, hello there, dear sir, how are you? <laughs> oh, um, then in um, in Marine, we've got Tyrion, for no reason at all, walking down into the dungeon, except that, you know, it helps move the plot forward. Someone has to like become friends with the dragons, it. and yeah, obviously it's going to be me. Um, I do like that, you know, Daenerys is the mother of dragons has been living with these dragons and talking to them and tending to them for mm. years without really getting anywhere. And Tyrion walks in, tells them a 30-second story, and is pretty much best friends. Yeah, it's like, unlock me too, little boy. Um, I, there was a theory that, um, and I spoke about this last week, that um, Tyrion is like the... Quentin Martell analog, mm. and he would have got flamed yeah. by the dragons because you know in the books Quentin Martell um, goes from Dawn to Marine, and um, he believes that he's the third head of the dragon. Mm. Three dragons needs three riders. Jon Snow, Daenerys. Who's the other one going to be? He thinks it's him. He's not. He gets burnt alive. Yeah. So, but the other theory is going around is that Tyrion is. The other one. Yeah, and I think that's probably, again, one of those fairly, um, when you sit down and think about it a little bit, one of those fairly obvious bits of narrative mm. progression. Like, it kind of fits in so much with his diminutive stature that at some point he's going to become this incredibly powerful, you know, well, soldier, perhaps. Tyrion's the brains, mm-hmm. and Jon Snow's the muscle, and Daenerys is the face of the business. <laughs> <laughs> But but I, I, I think oh. one of my um, one of my favorite theories about the Daenerys thing is that we're being set up for the fall as the reader because she is this very sympathetic character and perhaps almost mm. too sympathetic and she's just trying to do some good in the world. She's trying to save like free the slaves. She's trying to yeah. like you know take back Westeros and solve all its simmering conflicts through yeah. like cleansing fire. But that <laughs> it's going to be a comment on the like delusions of someone's ability to kind of solve things through warfare. And actually what she is going to bring is devastation and ruin and death and fire because... Well, that's we, what we, she's we, done in Slaver's Bay. Mm, and we assume that the song, a song of ice and fire means that the White Walkers are going to be necessarily evil and the person bringing the fire is going to be good. That sort of gels with our Which is general that, presumptions in the world. And that's how it's kind of set up from Series 1. Yeah, because the White Walkers we have seen are definitively evil, whereas Daenerys seems to have some sort of unblemished heart of gold, which is and, a very odd thing within the realm of the universe of the books. And in fantasy genres, it's the evil ice zombies who raise the dead, mm-hmm. who are the baddies. Yeah. And it's the um, beautiful young blonde princess who's the goody. That's a that's a trope. Yeah. And perhaps in this universe, the moral values are a bit more neutral. Like, and that the ice is a power of um, destruction and death and th- something to be feared. But fire may also be that. They may just be countervailing 
forces in the universe that don't necessarily have good and bad correlations. If only there was They're someone just destructive. If only there was someone who's half Stark, half Targaryen to bring them all together. Yeah. Um. Okay. So. Uh, I mean, we've got some other stuff in this episode that wasn't quite as groundbreaking, but it all still happened. Um, I, uh, so, I mean, perhaps the Greyjoys unpack uh, the sort of power play there because they've just dispensed with so many hundreds of very trying pages from A Feast of Crows. I like all the Iron Island stuff. Am I weird? You I just are think, weird, like, Dan. sad pirate Vikings. Like, I think one of them's a bit wizardy. Um, it was a bit of a. Because, you know, in the books. Um, it's just like Balon fell off. With the second you saw a shot of a bridge and Balon leaving the room, you're like, bye bye. <laughs> and um, also, for the love of God, like Iron Islands, you have had centuries to kind of come up with better bridge technology. And he, yes. is, he is leaving his throne room on what could only be called the like most rickety <laughs> threadbare bridge in all of Westeros. It's so true. It's like, how can you erect these towering buildings on the edge of a cliff where there's no possible way to make scaffolding, yet your bridges are woefully inadequate? How are you doing this? Oh, but, you know, he... He thought he could do it. In the books, he just you just find mm. out by Raven that he fell off a bridge. And, and then uh, Euron and Victarion just turn up. Mm. And it's like, did one of them toss him off the bridge? See, I must admit, I don't think I was paying enough attention to that entire storyline to actually pick up any of the subtext. I was just like, yeah, he fell off a bridge. That's what old people do. Like, you know, nah. they can't be trusted on rickety bridges. Well, that's it's a convenient excuse. Yeah, but... and so it makes a lot of sense for Victarion to have done it. Um, but I... Because... In the book as well, it was suggested this was part of um, Mel's magic. Correct. Well, she threw the leeches into the fire and all the kings subsequently died. Mm. I think Stannis is still alive in the books. Um, So we met Euron tonight on Mm. the bridge who is like, you know, in the books, he's the blue-lipped warlock. Um, Mm. We're going to get a king's moot. That's what's going to happen. We're going to get a king's moot. They're going to say... Euron, you are the new king of the Iron Islands, and I'm assuming that, I mean, Theon sounds like he's going to rock up. I always wonder about interstate travel in Westeros. Like, it's such a sliding scale on how quickly it takes to get places, how easy or how difficult it is. Sometimes you can't walk a metre down the king's road without brigands attacking you. Other times it's like, yeah, I made it through, no problems. Yeah. It's so weird. Like, what's the geography? How long does it take to get from place to place? Yeah, yeah, Yeah. The, the timeline of... Everything within this uh, show is pretty uh, yeah. fragmentary. Because I get a, the idea that George is pretty on top of like where everything is happening chronologically in relation to one another. Yeah. And he often uses it as a very interesting um, narrative device, or rather a device that keeps things interesting. Because yeah. you're like, oh, they're getting word of this thing later. Yes. And all these. Yeah. So you're like, oh, this must be happening at about the same time. Um, but yeah, in the show, it's just like you have the idea that everything is happening at the same time in the same episode. Just, yeah, boom, boom, um, boom. So yeah. yeah, sometimes people just have to be able to walk like 500 mile in the space <laughs> for about 20 minutes. That was a big <laughs> afternoon, yeah. Theon may well turn up there in time for the mm. King's Moot where they decide who the new King of the Iron Islands is. And so it'll be a three-way. Mm. I kind of doubt it. I also just don't think they're going to be able to reconstruct Theon's character enough for him to be able to deliver a compelling speech at the King's Moot. That's true. He is a bit 
shaky down in the dumps. <laughs> um, there was other stuff as well. It's it never was... been the same since Ramsey ate his penis. <laughs> he didn't <laughs> eat his penis. It was a sausage. I've seen the animated GIF so many times. It was a sausage. So it was good to see um, Robert Strong, uh, aka the reanimated mountain. Yeah, it was um, indeed. Um, smashing old mate's head against the wall. That was quite well shot. Yeah. I like that. That was, that was funny. Another, another wet sack of newspaper yeah. moment. Just yeah. like a bit of Foley artistry. Yeah, yeah. Like an old melon. Just... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was great. Um, it'd be good to see him do some ass kicking eventually. Mm-hmm. Another, yet another like Lannister chat over a dead body of one of their relatives like, in the sept. My cellar, we hardly knew you. Yep. Right. Um, we saw a bit of Aria in Bravos. I've got to say, if there's a um, neighbourhood watch system in Bravos, <laughs> it is not working because a small girl just got thwacked with a stick multiple times and no one at all reported it. Like, that must be a crime-ridden Venice because <laughs> how can someone just pound a small blind girl so repetitively? <laughs> Either that or it's happening with alarming regularity. It's like, oh, look, the bloody house of black and white yeah. are training another assassin. Oh. Or just the festival of blind girl bashing, like once yeah. a year, every yeah. year. <laughs> like whacking day, yeah. Oh, for good luck. Ah! It's another one of those storylines, like the Brienne one or whatever, that just because other stuff's moving quickly, this one's yeah. moving slowly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But I mean, it also was moving super slowly in the book. And I guess mm. Arya is one of those. Uh, I think she was such a crowd favorite in both TV show and book up until the end of the third book. And then they sent her to Bravos, and you're like, this is also going to be really cool. Look at this new place. She's trained to be an assassin. Yeah. And then like 1,800 pages of prose later, you're like, what the fuck is she doing? (laughs) And I've even read this preview chapter that she features in in the next book. And I'm like, where is this arc? Like, when is this arc going to be tied back together to something that makes that something that impacts on anything except for Arya, which again, I wonder much like Bran. Yeah. What they're going to do. Yeah. Or like Samuel Tarly off to um, old town, you know, thank God. God out of our screens. Like yeah. just I hope he does a brand this season and we don't see him or Jillian until they like arrive in Old Town. I, Old Town is one of my favourite things out of the books because it's been held as this like super important yeah. place that everyone talks about the, the, so much. The and maesters it, and the glass candles and Alaras the Sphinx and all this stuff. And, and no one who watches a TV show even knows that it exists. And there has been every episode now, well, the two episodes we've watched this season, I'm waiting for Old Town to kind of rise out of the intro credits. But in the yeah. book, like, even the fact that, is it both in books Four and five, the intro um, or the preview uh, chapter yeah, like is set the, in Old Town. The prologues and the epilogues. Yeah, yeah, they're happening in Old Town, and you're like, "Ooh, it's going to be a big feature," and it's nothing. Like yeah. they don't talk about it again. Well, if you go on the internet, you find a lot of theories. Mm. Just before we go, um, I was telling you about this one theory that um, about Melisandre, right? Mm. So there was a lot of talk about her aging, mm-hmm. and we haven't really resolved any of that in yeah, this episode. Dorian Gray moment. Yeah. Um, the idea is, is that she is a secret Targaryen, which is like, you can say that about every character, yeah. really, if you think hard <laughs> enough. And her parents are Bloodraven, mm-hmm. as in Bran's mate, mm-hmm. Beyond the Wall, mm-hmm. the Three-Eyed Crow, Max von Sydow, 
Or, uh, no, and... This would be an interesting way of bringing together these uh, yep. characters. And uh, Shira Seastar, who is a minor Targaryen, who's mentioned... I'm pretty sure she's a Targaryen. Maybe not. But she's mentioned throughout the books. And I was like, yeah, sure, pull the other one. But if you look at the physical description... Mm. And this is where you often get a lot of clues. If you look at the physical description of Melisandre and the physical description of Shira Seastar, mm. it's like, holy crap. They are literally described with the exact same seven adjectives. Mm. Like, that's got to be intentional. When you sent me the uh, theory, like, via email a couple of days ago, I read it and I was like, this seems like one of those theories that's way too obscure to have any relevance to the TV show. Like, it might be a curio for the books, but perhaps not on TV. Mm. But now that you've sort of explained that, and especially the fact of Blood Raven being the three-eyed crow, yeah. being her father, and the fact that Bran is going to have to return to the wall yeah. at some point, I presume, in the next three to four episodes, it's very easy to see how they will have a face-to-face thing and Bran will know who ah. she is. So much at play. So many storylines. Look, the fact that she's very old is definitely important because they didn't need that scene. Absolutely. It wasn't even like last week I was talking with Alice about how like um, the the reason she looks so old is because she's aged herself to give those years Mm. to Jon Snow. That kind of, that wasn't even the case as far as we know. I don't know. We might be. We might find out tomorrow, uh, next week. But, um, you know, I yeah, I, I think I read it at the time as more just a symbol of like her humbling the fact that she was this kind of, you know, incredibly beautiful, powerful woman, but everything had been taken from her. But it is also something that you're like, it's going to come up that she is ancient, that she is. We all knew she was wise beyond her years. We all knew that like there's, there's so many obvious descriptors in there. But, um, again, I guess we'll just watch it unfold. We can't sit here like book nerds. Who know everything. We have lost our power, Dan. We've lost our power. Um, all right. Well, thanks for coming in, Luke. That's my absolute pleasure, Dan. Hopefully right. I get to chat to you again before the season's out. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks to Luke there. You can follow him on Twitter at LukeAirsRyan. Um, and uh, as promised, this is a bit of my chat uh, in front of about a 1,000 people in Melbourne a couple of years ago with George R.R. R. Martin, the man who made all of this possible. Um, I should start by saying that if you know, if you want to just you know grab your laptop and do half an hour of writing, that's perfectly fine. I mean, it's totally okay. <laughs> Otherwise, we can have a good old chat. I don't. I don't actually uh, use a laptop, so uh, I guess I'll have to fly home and okay, get that you're quill. You, you're quill. <laughs> I'll leave now. No, uh, George, you've said uh, I've heard you say a couple of times actually that uh, when you wrote Game of Thrones, uh, you did it because you wanted to make a book that was as big as your imagination. So my first question is, did you ever imagine that the book would be this big? Uh, <clears throat> no, uh, in a word. So you failed in a way. In, <laughs> in either sense. I mean, I didn't know that the book would be uh, physically as big. I'd, actually, when I began, I didn't know what I had. I thought even for you know a moment or two that it might be a short story or a novella, but... I rapidly decided that, it, and, and sold it on the basis of being a trilogy. So, as you now know, I'm now working on book six of the trilogy. So, 
it's gotten a lot bigger than I thought uh, in that terms. But also, of course, the success of it has, uh, you know, whenever you write a book, you want it to be a success, and uh, you, you want it to be perhaps a bigger success than you've had before. Uh, I'd been very lucky in my career. I'd had a number of, uh, number of successes, uh, some books that did very well. Mind you, also some books that did very badly. But uh, I'd had a good career in Hollywood, successes, failures, uh, nominated for awards, winning some awards. So I'd, I'd done okay, but you always hope that the next one is going to be the home run. And uh, that turned out to be the case, uh, but f on a scale far more than I ever could have dreamed. So this is all, uh, this is all pretty amazing, and uh, uh, amazing things still still keep happening. Well, to be here on the other side of the world and to have all these people who know, you know so much stuff about, about what you've done must be a real thrill. I have been here on the other side of the world before. Uh, I, was, uh, I was reminiscing. This is about my fifth or sixth trip to Australia, I think. The, the first time I came here was in uh, 1990 uh, when I was the guest of honor at the Australian National Science Fiction Convention. I, my friend Stephen Boucher, who's somewhere in the audience, was my my liaison who invited me down for that. Uh, we, we were in a, I think there were about 200 people there at the entire convention. We were in a hotel called The Diplomat here in Melbourne, which was one of the biggest flea bags uh, you, could ever, you could ever expect. It had, a, it had a bar about the size of this table, which was troublesome because the bars are the centers of a traditional science fiction convention. And so there were about 40 people jammed into the bar, and one of them was Peter Nichols smoking his big cigars. So uh, we all were smoking a cigar that, uh, that weekend. It was right across from Luna Park. I remember uh, I could look out my windows and see that hideous demon face. <laughs> that actually inspired the White Walkers, which is an interesting fact. But, well, this, this time we've rolled out the real red carpet for you. It's the finest theatre that 1975 has to offer. So, fantastic. It's, it's, um, I, think, I, I like it. It's very cool. I think it'd be fair to say, based on what you just said, that you don't write to a plan. The, the writing more just, you know, grabs you and, and you just sort of chase it. Uh, yes and no. I, I mean, I, I do know where I'm going. I, I uh, know where the story ends. I know the fate of the principal characters. No, I'm not going to tell any of you. Um, but there is a considerable amount that you discover in the process of writing. Um, that's the fun of writing, actually. Uh, I've talked about, uh, in, in many other interviews, about the two kinds of writers, the, the gardener and the architect. You know, the, they're architect uh, is like an architect planning a building when he plans a novel. He, he knows how many stories it's going to be and how many windows it's going to have and how it's going to be heated and what the roof is made of and where the plugs are going to be in each wall and etc. etc. And he works all of that out and blueprints all of that or outlines it in the case of a novel before he drives the first nail or writes the first sentence. Um, the gardener digs a hole and throws in a seed and sort of waters it with his blood and hopes that uh, something interesting comes out. Now, you know, mind you, the gardener knows certain things. The gardener knows whether he plant, planted a, a potato or a geranium, but, uh, and it would be very surprising if you plant a potato and a geranium comes up. But uh, a lot is discovered in the, in the process. I, I think all writers are some combination of these two, but they, they tend, 
according to your personality to one side or another. And I'm much more on the gardener side. I am, you know, I think like 90% gardener. As were somebody like J.R.R. Tolkien, who, uh, you know, one of my literary idols, who uh, started out writing Lord of the Rings as a sequel to The Hobbit, and uh, it grew considerably. The tale grew in the telling, as he said, as mine has. Is there anything in the books that you would say is a pleasant surprise? Something you just, you know, started writing and, and now you go, wow, that's become a major thing and I never thought it would happen. Sometimes characters push to the forefront and become uh, more important than you thought they would be. Um, I know I've been doing the, uh, the supernova conventions uh, in Brisbane and we're moving to one in Adelaide and there are some other people from the show here uh, on, on that uh, Supernova Circuit, mm. including, of course, Michelle. Lena Hetty was there. Also, Jerome uh, Flynn, who plays Braun, the mercenary. Braun's a, a, a clear example of uh, a character that really grew in, uh, in the act of writing. I mean, I, I knew that I didn't want Tyrion to die in the hands of Lysa Aaron, so I knew that someone had to step forward and uh, fight for his behalf when he he demanded a trial by battle in uh, book one. And I knew it was going to be one of these two swords that uh, Tyrion would cleverly manipulate uh, the guy's desire for wealth. But I actually had two guys. I had Bronn and a character named Chigan. And it was almost flipping the coin, which one died and which one uh, stepped forward. And uh, Bronn was the one who stepped forward. And even at that point, I thought, well, maybe Tyrion will use him and discard him or... But, you no, know, I need him through the mountains. And then it, he proved useful because it was someone that Tyrion could actually talk to. And then he started talking back and he had some funny lines and his personality kind of developed. And, you know. These are all like words that you're typing as well. Like, this isn't two people at this stage. Like, right, right. This is words that I'm typing, but uh, I don't know where they come from. And then, of course, when you get the show, you cast a wonderful actor. Mm. Uh, like uh, like Jerome in it, and he he really makes that part his own, and suddenly the character is even more appealing. You don't uh, know, like some you're saying that you don't sometimes know where it's going to go, but all of us have no idea where it's going to go. But do you often? I intend to keep it that way. Well, great. <laughs> bugger! Um, I thought I was going to be the one to wheedle it out of him, guys. Um, do you sometimes look at the speculation on the internet and go, "Oh my god, how are they coming up with these theories?" You know, I, I, I did once upon a time, a long, long time ago, but I've given up doing that. Um, <laughs> actually, the, the, the uh, internet ice and fire community, Game of Thrones community, uh, of course, has grown hugely over the years, mm-hmm. just like the series has. It actually began right here in Australia. The very first website ever devoted to the series was uh, started... Uh, by a guy named Peter Gibbs, who uh, was called Dragonstone, and it was based here in Australia. And it was the first bulletin board where people would post their theories and discuss them and talk about who was the favorite character or who would win in a sword fight or, you know, what secrets they thought I was uh, Mm. hiding or not hiding. Um, And when that occurred, and and now we're going back to, uh, I think, around 1998, 99, that this... Dragonstone started. Um, I did look at it. I was very flattered to have a website entirely con- devoted to fans discussing not fantasy in general and not science fiction in general, but specifically the series that I was working on. 
And I read some of the discussions, but then it rapidly dawned on me, you know, I should not be doing this. Uh, oh, okay. For one thing, I, I don't want to actually post there, because the minute I post there, <laughs> the free discussion among fans who are all more or less equal ends, and it becomes instead everybody gather around the author and ask him questions. And that's a distortion of what the format yeah. should be. I didn't want to do that. And the other thing is, yeah, some of the theories were incredibly wrong-headed, and amusing in that sense. <laughs> Some of them were clever, and maybe I hadn't thought of them, but now I'm saying, you know, that would be a good idea. Have you done that? Uh, no, I don't want to do that either, because then, you know, then I'm like taking uh, ideas from, from the fan. I don't want to, I want this to be my own ideas. And then the other one was, of course, some, you know, I have certain things that I'm laying clues for that there'll be revelations later on. Some people had put together those clues even as early as 1998 and are adding things together. I said, well, what do, what do I do with that? What do I do with that? The, yeah, these people have guessed the secret that I'm going to reveal in book six. People have already guessed that here, and book two is just out. You really have two choices there. You can ignore it and proceed with your plan, despite the fact that some people know where you're going. Or you can get all panicky and say, oh my God, they figured it out. I can't let that be. I'll have to change it. I'll have to go in a different direction. And I, th I think some writers do that. And I think that's always mm. a mistake. Yeah. You know, if you've planned your book that the butler did it, and then you read an internet, someone has figured out that the butler did it, and you suddenly change in midstream and it was the chambermaid who did it, mm. then you screw up the whole book because you get these, this foreshadowing early on and you've got these little clues you planted. Now they're dead ends and you have to introduce other clues and you're retconning. It's a mess. So I decided as early as Dragon's, Dragonstone's heyday, and I think that site had gone away by 2000 or so, um, that... I would stay off the fan sites and, and let, the fa let those be for the fans, let those be for the readers, let them argue their theories, whether they're right, whether they're wrong. But I don't need to know about that. One thing that people try to do on the internet is they watch the show and then based on what isn't included in the show, they assume that isn't important in the books. For example, um, Jane Westerling uh, survives, but uh, Talisa doesn't. Now, is that a fool's errand? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, it's, again, is it just people massively overthinking everything? People do overthink a, a number of aspects to this, you know. Oh, eye colour? <laughs> uh, yes, that and other things. People overthink my, my own comments here. I mean, we have, some of you will undoubtedly rush home and, and tweet or f post on Facebook about this. Some of you are probably tweeting even now. And... <laughs> I will make some joke or some offhand comment, and, and uh, of course, when you're, it's being repeated in tweeting and all that, they, they, all of the context and the tone of voice is taken out of it, and suddenly it becomes like a papal pronouncement, and people <laughs> are going over it. Oh, he used this word instead of that word. That must mean this thing, and, <laughs> and uh, it's, it's a little kind of scary, the freight that can, uh, that can be generated by uh, some of that. Yeah, but the, the show... Um, the show is the show, and the books are the books. Uh, Dave and Dan are doing a great job, and they're doing a very faithful thing, but they're, they're operating under constraints that I don't have. And uh, budget, running time, uh, you know, the practicalities of production. Um, so 
there are places where the two are going to diverge, and uh, they they are going to diverge. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, once again go back and make the chambermaid do it instead of mm. the butler did it because because of something David and Dan did in the show. And if and if there are indeed at the end there are differences, well, so be it. There are in virtually every movie that was uh, every yeah. every movie adapted from a book, every television series adapted from a book. These differences exist. You never get a complete transliteration. One of the themes that I seem to see in Game of Thrones is there's some characters who um, they have a sort of sense of entitlement. There's a reason why they des- they not deserve, but they get everything. Maybe they were born to a certain father, or they you know they were born in a certain castle or whatever. And other characters who, because of fate, are denied certain things. Maybe because they're a bastard, or they're a dwarf, or a woman. Right? right. Is that a sort of dichotomy that you're really trying to explore there? The idea of people who feel they're entitled to things and people have to struggle to get them. Well, I've I've always uh, had a certain attraction to cripples, bastards, and broken things. Uh, and yes, there are a great number of uh, the, the viewpoint characters, in particular Game of Thrones, who are uh, suffering under one handicap or another. You know, Tyrion is a, is a dwarf, mm. and uh, uh, of course the women are, are reacting against the rules expected for their, their sex in a medieval society, in the society of Westeros. Uh, Jon Snow is a bastard, um, Sam is not as fat and is not the kind of uh, ideal lord that people, <laughs> yeah, uh, want for that time. So, th- so there's a lot of people in a brand gets gets paralyzed. Um, I find these characters with problems interesting. As for the entitlement, uh, yeah, I'm I'm kind of looking at that. You know, it's one of my pet peeves about a lot of the fantasy that's out there is. Uh, I read a lot of fantasy, uh, not necessarily, the current stuff is actually better, uh, but if you go back to the period in the 70s and 80s and, and 90s, uh, before I really began Game of Thrones, there's, there's a lot of fantasy out there that takes place in the, like the Disneyland Middle Ages, mm. where they, they have castles and wizards and, and knights and kings and... and um, Yet they don't really seem to understand how those societies work. They don't have a real grasp on it, and particularly the, the aspects of the the class society, which had teeth in those days. Yeah. It had teeth, and you know, it, if I read one more scene where you know the the spunky peasant boy tells off the spoiled princess, and uh, you know they wind up having a romance. It, the spunky peasant boy who told off the spoiled princess would have his spunky peasant tongue removed with hot. <laughs> hot, spunky pincers uh, for daring to speak that way to, uh, to his better. I mean, the, the, the kings, the lords uh, had enormous power over the people in the lower social classes. And uh, the ideas that we have of justice are, yes, they're rooted in that time. They're rooted in things like the Magna Carta and English common law. But those things were far from developed in our present reason. I mean, it, it was the dark ages for a reason. I know that term is no longer politically incorrect, but screw it all, it's still the best term for that particular <laughs> early Middle Ages. I think another thing I notice is um, you find just one thing that a character loves or that they hold dear, and then you find the most brutal way to rip it away from them. 
Like I said before with Michelle, like just the way her family gets systematically torn away from her or like Jamie, it's just bang, your sword hand is gone. Now what do you do? Is that something that you try to do? Do you try to, <laughs> do you try to just find really how to destroy your character's life in an exceptionally specific way based on what they hold dear? Do I do that? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> now that I've said it, are you questioning whether you're a sadist or not? Or <laughs> no, I think you, you, know, you, you have to take your characters and you have to put them through crises. That's what, that's what fiction and, and drama is all about. Is, is not, uh, you know, your, your hero has a really good time. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> Um, things have to happen that cause the characters to, to question who they are and what their place in the world is and what the meaning of it all is, to, to go through the dark nights of the soul and, and times of, uh, of fear and terror and uh, all of this. Uh, you know, I've always taken as my mantra the William Faulkner's words in his Nobel Prize acceptance speech where he said, uh, the human heart in conflict with itself is the only thing worth writing about. Um, I think that's true of all fiction, of, of literary fiction, such as Faulkner wrote, but also of science fiction and fantasy and historical novels and uh, nurse novels and whatever. I mean, if you, ha- if you have real characters grappling with real problems, the human heart in conflict with itself, doesn't matter if it's in a castle or a spaceship or whatever, if you have that, then, then you have power. And if you don't, then... You don't, and, and uh, Jamie losing a hand, losing the, the very thing that he defined himself mm. on is, is uh, crucial to, uh, I, I think, uh, where I want to go with the character. And he questions, what do, you, what do you make of yourself after you've lost that? And, of course, I have Tyrion now going through similar things. I mean, he's always focused on the things that he... Uh, he did not have, like his father's respect or admiration or, you know, perhaps women didn't look on him the way he would have liked them to look on him and all of that stuff. But in the aftermath of the events of uh, the recent books, he's now realizing the things that he did have that he's now lost, like mm. the Lannister name and a vast fortune in gold that could allow him to, to buy and sell anything. He's been reduced to the most primal, difficult situation where he has nothing but the clothes on his back, and even those don't belong to him and his, his wits, his tongue. So, uh, yeah, that's what, that's what drama comes out of. I love exploring that stuff. Do you ever, like, um, you know, do something like cut Jamie's hand off and then go... Bugger, I wish I could still see him sword fight. Why did I do that? <laughs> Is there any, something you've written and you've gone, why did I do that? No. No. <laughs> no, I'm pretty happy with most of what I've done. Uh, you know, there are, uh, there, there are a few things uh, that, that you were not aware of because as a gardener, um, with the kind of writing style that I that I use, um, I go down a lot of dead ends. So there are moments of why the hell did I do that, but they never appear in the books because hopefully I, I say that before the book comes out and then I, <laughs> I rip out that chapter or I revise that chapter so you know, something 
something different happens instead and it, it feels better, it, it works better for me. So hopefully none of those things will make it into print. Uh, although, you know, you never know. Um, I look back on books I wrote 20 years ago, you know, before, before Game of Thrones, and I did, by the way, guys, write books and short stories before Game of Thrones. Available at your so, local library the, uh, yeah, or bookstore. The, there are a lot of them there, but I look back at some of them and, and see from the benefit of hindsight things I could have done differently, things I could have done better. You hope you're always improving, but still. But Game of Thrones is perfect. I think so, pretty much, yeah. 